Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps. This meeting is being recorded. Okay, folks, welcome to another episode of Latte with a Lawyer. I'm your host, Jonathan Brickman. And uh, this afternoon, we have with us Kathleen Rigaud. Did I pronounce it correctly? Mm-hmm. Oh, good. From the um, law firm of House and House, and she is a patent attorney, and we're going to talk about that. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. Yes. So um, I know it's the afternoon, and you probably uh, are done drinking coffee, but latte with a lawyer, what's your morning beverage of choice? Well, I'm a patent attorney and I practice in biotechnology. So that means I started as a graduate student and a graduate student that inside you never dies. So I make a 10 pot, co- a 10 cup pot of coffee every morning. My husband and I drink it and it's probably Folgers or Maxwell house. Right. <laughs> now, when I get fancy, I might go to Starbucks for the mocha latte, you know, that one, but not mo- really. <laughs> right, I'm okay. just an old school girl with a I like the French vanilla cream that's what's in my coffee all right good wait so uh you, you're from Queens and I can hear the accent coming through loud and clear so we're yes. exactly in Queens I grew up in Rockaway Beach New York it's a tiny oh, Rockaway Beach sure that's all Ramon sang a song about it it's only four blocks wide one side is ocean one side is bay and my family built the first six houses on 131st street there and I had a beach house and then Sandy came and took that to the ocean. But that's another story for another time. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't yeah. realize Rockaway Beach was considered Queens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, oh. it's connected to New York City by the um, bridge to go, that goes to Brooklyn. Yeah. And the bridge that goes to the Cross Bay Bridge and the Marine Parkway. Yeah, the bridge. Cross Bay. Yeah. I've driven right. through it many times. My brother used to have a house in Atlantic Beach. I drive through far Rockaways. And sure. Go that's beautiful. Atlantic Beach, too. Yeah. 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 I did not realize that that was considered Queens. Okay. Yeah, I still keep an apartment there. I'll never give it up. Oh, I kept it when I was trying to rebuild the house. It's a block off the beach, though. I have the indignity now of having to cross the boulevard after growing up in oceanfront property. You should feel sorry for me. I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but th- this, there's some a lot of new development over there, I understand. It's crazy. Yeah. I'm actually quite concerned because I'd like to buy back in. But I'm sort of biding my time. My whole family still lives there. My sister's a retired New York City cop. You know, my really? everybody. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and wow. so I would love to go back. I'd like my vision is to retire in New York City and in Ireland, where I have a 300 year old cottage I restored. You know, that's Very my nice. plan. My Very vision. Nice. But I don't know. There's too much building. It's too small. And I believe in global warming. And having had lost everything you own, the garage and the car, one time. Um, it's sort of, I'm a little afraid. I have fear. So I have to live high up. I'm looking at those places on the boardwalk, you know, but maybe like, (laughs) you're very exposed Rockwell. I mean, you're like right there. You're super exposed. Oh, it's right there. So, you know, and having gone through that once I would loathe to do that again. Yeah. Yeah. I don't blame you. Well, I'm in South Florida now. Oh, uh, uh, Delray beach. Okay. Yeah, it's beautiful there. 20, 20 minutes south of West Palm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, now I'm a boss. At, at your own peril. <laughs> at, my, at my own peril. I can escape. I'm not, I'm like six miles inland from the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, well, it's a powerful force. I'll just throw that out there for consideration. Oh, I know. <laughs> you, you, you don't have to. You don't have to tell me that. I know it is. So uh, that's interesting. So tell tell me about your story, like uh, how you came from Queens and became a uh, a biologist and a um, patent attorney. Tell me about okay. that journey. My original plan was to be a medical doctor. And so I went down to the college that gave me the biggest scholarship because I was one of five kids born third to Virginia Wesleyan College in Norfolk. And I studied biology there and I graduated. And then I went and I got a master's at New York Medical College, still trying to go to medical school. And I, I didn't get in. And then I went to graduate school at a medical school and I did very well. And at that stage, I could have gone, but I was 28 and I had just married my husband and I was concerned about my life work balance and babies and being a medical doctor. So I stayed with the PhD and I finished that up and that was great. And then I became, I, I decided to go to the NIH. I got an offer for a very good position as a staff fellow at the NIH on tenure oh, track. You live in Bethesda? So, yeah. So we moved, my husband came with me, gave up his job for 17 years and followed me down to Bethesda. And we lived on Saul Road on Connecticut Avenue. It's a beautiful part of Maryland. I lived in Bethesda and, for 10 years. Yeah. And I would ride yeah. my bike to the NIH and it yeah. was great. And I worked on immunotoxins that killed T cell lymphomas and leukemias. And it was very interesting work and it was great. And while I was there, my brother-in-law met my senior partner at the, my other law firm that I was at, at the Union League in Philadelphia, a very posh then men's club, you know. They yes. let women in now. So okay. he was lamenting that nobody, no lawyers knew enough science to write these patents coming out of one of their big cancer institution clients. Yeah. And John said, oh, you must meet my sister-in-law. She knows all about that stuff. And that's how I became a lawyer, okay? Now, my family was filled with lawyers. I have a lot of judges in the line and my cousins are lawyers and my grandfather was a lawyer, but I was a scientist, you know, I was going to cure cancer. And so I met Roger at the Union League and they didn't have any jobs at the time. I did send four letters to four law firms in Philly. I didn't get a job. And that was in December. And then in March, the person at, at Roger's firm left and they needed a technical advisor. And so they called me back and said, would you come up? And I said, sure. So I went for the real interview and I told them, I didn't believe in any science before 10. I didn't see why the law should be any different. <laughs> and my husband said, you didn't get that job. I said, I will stay till the cows come home. I have slept in the ladies room doing 24 hour time courses, but I'm really not a morning person. And, but they gave me the job anyway. And it was already March, I'll pass the time to apply for law school. But I did go and sit for the, um, the you know, the, the, the uh, LSAT and yeah. take the test. I, bought, I went to, got a book, read the book, went and sat for the test. It was the first time I took a standardized test because I'd taken the MCATs a few times where I was like, I had my pencil sharp and I didn't really care because I already had a job and everybody else was like, oh. And so I, I went and I did okay. You know, I did what would be the equivalent of like 85, 88% on the bar. You know, yeah. On the, on yeah, sure. And so I went to the law firm. I started in a law firm in May and I applied to Rutgers, one law school, because it was on the way home and close to where we were renting a house at the time. And I had gotten my PhD at Rutgers. So I figured, you know, come on, they're going to let me in. They know I'm smart. <laughs> so I applied to Rutgers in Camden, which is a very scenic campus. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, I'm at the law firm and it's late May now. They're a month 
and they're asking, are you going to go to law school? And first I said, you know, they're like, you don't have to go. I said, yeah, I know I don't have to go, but if I don't go, then I won't be a boss here and that's not going to work for me. So I'll go. <laughs> and I didn't fall off a stupid truck. So I called the law school and I say, hi, this is Kate Rigo. Um, any word on my application? Oh, Ms. Rigo, we're just getting ready to send you an acceptance letter. So happy day. So I started at the law firm before I started law school, but I worked full time and I went to law school at night. All right. So for four years and that was a, a journey and there were days where I was like, what am I doing? Have I lost my mind completely? But, you know, my whole theory was always get a B or better to maintain credibility. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I did well. I did well enough in law school, finished it up and it took four years at night. And by then, um, I, one of the attorneys at the firm two years after uh, I, I graduated, she, she had left and they, she was the biotech person. And so myself and my partner, Pat Hagen, we took the practice and we kept it going and it was all good in the hood. And the next thing you know, uh, about six years in, I had two associates working for me and I said, gentlemen, you need to make me a partner because you're making me work like a partner. I'm doing everything like a partner. So I was offered partnership in six and a half years at the firm because they counted my time in law school towards my partnership. And I made partner pretty quickly. And then I built the biotech practice at that firm for 23 years. Okay, that's you know, great. For me, it was, I love science. You know, if you're a lab rat and you really love science and you're not married to one area, you know, many scientists are like gene therapists or yeah, whatever sure. they are. That's yeah. their thing, that's their right. focus, that's what they want to worry about. For me, I do, I can do, on one week, I can do, you know, ways to put trans genes into plant that make plants that make them drought resistant. I can do um, genetic markers for different pediatric diseases that are common to different cohorts and, and then drugs that will treat that disease. You know, my practice is methods for curing arterial injury next week. You know, it's, it's very, very varied, but if you love science, it's very, very good. You know, mm. if that's your thing. So for me, I did kind of take to it like a duck to water and I do enjoy it still. I find it fascinating actually still. Oh, nice. So uh, you said your sister was a, a New York City police officer. Yes. So are you the first attorney from your immediate family? From my immediate family, yeah, but my mom's dad was a lawyer. Yeah, and I know you said they were judge, but yeah. your siblings, no attorneys? Oh, no, no, my brother Michael works in the financial sector. My sister Kelly was a nurse. I'm where we're Michael, Kelly, Carrie, Kate, and Matthew. Do you think we're Irish? That's not okay. Irish. Yeah, that's not an Irish family, is. is it? So, so <laughs> Kelly was a nurse. I'm a lawyer. Carrie was a cop. My brother Matt was was actually murdered in 1980. That's another story. Ooh. And my brother Michael is in the financial sector. You know, but so so yes, I am the only lawyer in the family of, of yeah. our siblings. But my cousins are lawyers. I have my cousins are lawyers. You know, our family and my nephew is a patent lawyer too. My brother, the financial guy's son, is a patent attorney in biotech as well. Oh wow! It's in the genes. It's in the genes. It's in the genes. <laughs> Highly educated. Okay. We like uh, to learn. Uh -huh. like we like to. Yeah, I didn't get that far. I always said, you know, if there was something I was really interested in, you know, at, at one point I might have got a PhD, but there was nothing that was that interesting to me that I would you know, devote I, that time. I liked my PhD. I was trying to figure out how a particular virus um, assembled in vitro. 
you know, in, in vivo, you know, how the parts came together to make a, vi vi a viral particle that would go on and be infectious. And interestingly enough, it was a negative stranded RNA virus, you know, COVID's an RNA virus. So, you know, I learned a little bit on the way. That's oh, why. interesting. So do you yeah, think we're yeah. going to come up with a universal um, RNA vaccine? I think that the Moderna technology has great potential. Okay, you know, the fact that they can get it in and make it work now, yeah. the problem is the longevity, longevity of the therapy, you know, it seems to wear out, you know, when you put in an attenuated well, virus that, you know, was alive, you seem to get longer term immunity, right. you know, like your chicken pox vaccine, your measles vaccine. Yeah. These vaccines don't appear to have the same type of longevity, and I think that can be a drawback for them. But for something like in the immediate, like a cancer therapy, yeah or particularly blood cancers, which are accessible. You know, I think solid tumors will always pose an issue as long, but you know, now we're making liposomes with antibodies on them that target them. You know, right now, biotech is fascinating because we're finding all the tools to make it more cell specific. Remember chemotherapies in general were highly toxic because they would hit your healthy cells as well. It's you like know? a shotgun, you're going after everything. Right, right. Now it's a better day, you know? Okay. Yeah, let me see if I get this light on. Sorry. I mean, Sorry. I, I have no business even asking you any kind of like scientific questions, but I'll ask you one anyway. It, do, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't make um, just sort of logically. I mean, why, if you're, if you're generating this antibody response, why would it matter whether you're introducing the actual virus itself or just using another methodology, if you're getting in antibodies. Well, it's not just the antibodies that you want. You know, you want the T killer cell response. There's a lot of different- Oh, so responses. you don't get that with the RNA. Well, you do, you do, you absolutely do get it. But I think because it's an RNA vaccine, the molecule that triggers the antibody response is sure lived, okay? Where I, I'm not exactly sure the mechanism of why it's so transient, Yeah. but I think that is the problem. Oh, okay. You know, the fact that the immunity, you know, we all took that vaccine or most of us did. Right. And the fact that the immunity was gone in a year or two, you know, isn't the same as our measles and chicken pox that have stood us in good stead for 50 but years. I thought it was because it continued to mutate. I mean, we got a flu vaccine every year too, right? It's not that that doesn't last. That mutates too. Yeah. That's true too, that this one has a sloppy polymerase. And so it does change, you know? The, the, but I did, I did write a patent and this is all public because it was on TV for one of my people at Penn invented COVID gum. He takes the gum and he puts in the ACE receptor. He had cloned it for hypertension a couple of years ago. You know, that molecule that the COVID binds is the known human molecule that's important in hypertension, ACE2. Oh. He made a clone of ACE2 in lettuce leaves and he puts it in gum and he's getting, he's going for IND for PPE for this gum. You chew the gum and it harvests all the, um, oh, I'm frozen. It harvests the um, uh, COVID out of your mouth and it traps it. And then you could just throw it out. Okay. Oh, no so kidding. yeah, it debulks. And so he's of course trying to apply to other viruses as well, because it makes perfect sense to do so. So, you know, it's very exciting. Yeah. And this is just brand new right off the, uh, right off the hot presses actually. No kidding. Well, that's, yeah. the, that's the beauty of science, right? It continues to like iterate and get better and better and better. That's what I love about it. 
right? Yeah, well, like I said, it's never boring, really. Yeah, I can't imagine it's boring. So, um, so that's interesting. Okay, that's an interesting path to get there. Um, I mean, are you strictly, sur so you're writing patents. I mean, do you get involved with litigation ever? So what we, what I write, I write them, I file them and I opine on them. Okay. Okay. So I do freedom to operate opinions. Of course, you know, if, you know, most of us do, we do freedom to operate. We do, you know, paths forward, you know, where you might want to go with your inventions. You know, that's how we have clients. We do a lot of university work at my firm. So those, the client there, sometimes they might not be as um, generous with their billing as, you know, corporate, but <laughs> Yeah, they are the client that keeps giving if they like you, you know, I've had the same clients for over 20 years because they like what I do. Oh, I see. Like and, local in, in the. In well, the it's yeah, it's local, but it's also it can be all over because here's the story about tech transfer in America. You either have to kill your boss or, or move. OK, right. because once they get those directors positions, nobody's moving. So right. I've gotten clients because my people. Like I worked for Wyoming for a while. I worked for Oregon for a while mm. because my people get a job there and then they call me back, you know? Oh, I see. So, oh, you meet faculty that move from one. Yeah, yeah. My faculty keep me when they go. But also the tech transfer people that I work with that we get along with well will hire me again to the new place. Yeah, so yeah, I, no, I, used to, I used to sell into the university. I, I, I sort of know a, lot, a good bit about that. But, you know, faculty have tenure at the university, so they're not moving mm -hmm. around too much. Are they? Not that much, but you, sometimes they do if they get a better offer. Okay. Especially in biotech, because, you know, they want them to come in to be the head of this or that. Sure. You know, like the COVID gum guy, he was down in Florida <laughs> for quite a while, Dr. Henry Daniel. He was down in Florida for a while, but now he's at UPenn, you know. To, Less to close to you. Yeah. I, I just dropped yeah. my son off at Drexel, which ah. is the same space as Penn, as yep. you know. Very good school. Well, next time you're in town, we'll have dinner. <laughs> yeah. It was, it's really, it was really interesting. I, my wife gets mad at me when I say this, but like, you know, you walk down Chestnut Street on the one side, you get this beautiful, you know, um, Ivy League, you know, campus pen. And then you go to the other side, it's like eh, a little grittier. It's still nice, but. Oh, wow. Well, Philly is an Drexel. interesting city. Right? Well, I mean, Drexel, like the comparison between Penn and Drexel. Yep. No, it is. It is. But they're both excellent schools. Yeah, you know, I, th I, I think they're good. So, I, and Philly's a great city. Um, oh, yeah, I love Philly. It's like New, it has everything New York has without the madness, you know? Without the madness. Great restaurants. Right. The food is great. The museums are great. The, even the plays are good, you know, yeah. if you like to see shows. I do. Street. I haven't been to, I, we're going to go back there again for uh, Parents Weekend yeah. in October, I think. Mm hmm. Um, yeah we'll be back there again you like seafood ocean prime by the union league is really tasty <laughs> okay we found this little italian restaurant in south philly mm -hmm. that my son found oh my god oh like they know little... how to cook down in south philly the italian oh people. my god it you was know. amazing their sauce right oh it was on the sidewalk like in this little like nondescript neighborhood mm -hmm. and uh, they came out it's like it was amazing so Right, yeah. it has like 10 tables in there, right? Yes. Actually, yeah. there was like two inside. We sat outside on the sidewalk. Right, right. So, yeah. and it, was, it, was, it was quite good. Um, so, uh, all right, Pat, I mean, I, I've talked to probably, uh, I don't know, a handful of patent attorneys. You guys are interesting uh, cats there, I have to say. 
because it's a different flavor of um, of law. It's highly technical and scientific, right? Right. For me, yes, especially. So, um, but you're not the scientist, but you have to sort of opine and communicate that, right? Right. Well, I was a scientist, and that's no, why. No, I know I you were, but I'm saying in this function. Their language. No, I don't. I don't touch a pipette anymore, ever. Yeah. Okay, but I tell them how to touch the pipette. You want to do this experiment here that will help our claim. You still you have know? to stay very current, like to like offer. Absolutely, you science do. moves. Science moves like the wind. Yeah, like you know, I have I, st- I I I give lectures um, for Autumn, the uh, Association of University Technology Managers. You know, I gave a lecture on CRISPR a couple of years ago. That's the gene therapy technique where you go in and you cut out the bad gene and you put, replace it with a good gene. Yeah, it's all the rage now. There's companies all over about it. They're fighting over at UC and and Broad up at Harvard. Anyway, um, you have to learn all that. You did. You, I didn't know that in 1980. I got my PhD in 1992. Okay. Okay. Yeah, a long time ago. CRISPR didn't exist. You know. Right. So if you don't stay current, you're not going to get current technologies. You know. We. I do. I've written patents on in utero in utero gene editing. Okay. So this is the brave new world. Right now we're doing it in animals, but you have an animal with an inborn error of metabolism, sickle cell anemia, think cystic fibrosis, the kind of diseases that are driven by a single mutation in a protein. You go in, you're using CRISPR perhaps, you edit out that bad codon in utero before the fetus gets beyond a stage, you put in the correct gene and then the, the fetus develops normally. You know, this is where we're going, okay? Right now it's unethical in humans and although the Chinese have made a couple of blunders there, but um, you know, this is the way it's gonna be. My niece has cystic fibrosis. I welcome this technology, okay. you know? Yeah, interesting. But I mean, how? I mean, you can't possibly know every scientific. Oh no, like for example, we'll have people who are chemical patent attorneys, you know, I'm a biotechnologist. You have right. folks who specialize in microbiology. Then you have folks who didn't get a PhD. And so, but there's there's science that needs to be done that's not that deep and dark. And so they can do that. But Bill Bach, my partner, he's an electrical engineer. You know, yeah. at my other place, we had an engineer who was um, at a rock, um, Rochester, who was an optical physics engineer. You know, it's a bunch of eggheads collected in a group is what patent attorneys are. Yeah, 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 no, no, I see that. I've only been in boutiques, you know, so we've done, we had the chemical person or the chemical group, the the electrical group and the mechanical group, you know, and then you have the, 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 the biotech group. Got it. But in yeah. order to write a patent, again, you know, you have the scientists who came up with this thing, what exactly? I'm a little, still a little, it's a little fuzzy for me. Like, what exactly you're doing? Are you just communicating what they've invented? Do you really need to understand right. well, the, the writing, a, writing a patent is a bit formulaic. It doesn't matter what area you're writing it in. Okay, if if you have to write a patent according to how the patent office has told us they want to see a patent, there has to be a title. A, a field of the invention section, a background of the invention section, a summary of the invention, which yep. just tracks the claim language, the brief description of the drawings, and the detailed description of the invention, and perhaps references or something like that. Mm-hmm. So you have to do it in a format that's required. All right. Sure. So, so depending on the field I'm in, for example, like I will have boilerplate sections of a patent application if I'm making a transgenic plant, for example. 
I have to know if I'm going to be in a monocot or a dicot, and I, then I'm going to have a list of every plant that falls in that category. So what you have is once you start getting a name in particular art areas, you'll have the boilerplates you need for the detailed description of the invention. I work on a lot of siRNA and antisense RNAs. Again, these are molecules that go in and shut down gene expression. I'll have a whole section of that rewritten, and then it's tailored to the targeted gene or the type of siRNA mo molecule I might be using, okay? Mm. Same with the plant patents. What am I doing? Am I going to put it in by electroporation? That's where I shoot the gene into the plant cell with a little gun? Or am I going to do it with a plant virus that will drag the, the target gene in as a, 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 you know, as, as a decoy kind of thing, like a Trojan horse? So all of these things will have I will have written up, and I know... And I will tell them, you might want to do it this way, this way, or this way. So sometimes all of those ways come in. So that's where mm -hmm. I help my clients because I know the big picture. And part of the reason you write the patent is to block your competitors. Sure. It's not just to protect your invention. It's to be a blocking prior art document down the road to annoy them. Okay. So, so the broader you go, you don't want to go so broad that you step on your own feet for your own next invention. And I have done that. That's oh. bad. Okay. Because I get very creative. I'm a creative patent attorney. Some are not. Some will just take what you give them and that's what the patent office gets. I like think about it, make it put through a bell, a whistle, you know, and sometimes you have to be careful doing that because you can then be just before you're fully enabled, you know, and for it to be for something to be patented, it must be novel, non-obvious, enabled, fully described in your written description. Mm. And so sometimes I get a little creative and then we have to shuck and jive a bit to get the claim later. So it's a, it's a fine line. There's tension there. Okay. That's help, helpful to understand. So, I mean, you're, you're really just helping, uh, you know, take what was created and communicate it in a way that protects them, but doesn't limit from future. Right. And I also write it as a package that big pharma wants to buy. So I've been lucky enough to write my university patents, but they've been licensed to Merck. They've been licensed to Bristol Myers Squibb, you know, DuPont, you know, so you, if you write the patents well, everybody makes the money. Okay. So every, are they, is that what's happening regularly? The, the university, I mean, the, uh, the drug oh, companies are, in, are licensed. In a perfect and, world, that's the goal. You want to, some of them start their own small biotech company. Or to a biotech company. firm that wants to take it, what you've created, right? Right. Right. Yeah. So, and even the ones who did start their own biotech companies, and I have a number of those, you know, they start, they get investment money and off they go. Um, even those, um, many ultimately will be sold to big pharma. Yeah, no, I, yep, I, I, I get it. I understand. It's kind of like in the tech world too, where, you know, a little tech company gets in the way of Microsoft and they just take them out. Exactly. Uh, biotech, same thing with drug discovery. Yep. Right. And the inventor goes laughing all the way to the bank. At my old place, we had folks, folks down from Wake Forest and they invented, it was called the VAC. Okay. And it was a tube on a sponge and there was mockery in the hallway. This can't be patentable, but it was a, a, a therapeutic sponge and it was a light suction attached to a light, you know, suction apparatus. And it ended up being able to heal heretofore unhealable um, bed sores, gunshot wounds, because the, the, the sponge with a plastic wrap over it with the light suction would promote granulation and healing of these wounds that was not achievable before these gentlemen hmm. invented technology. That was making something like $100 million a year. 
And then it was wow. litigated for 10 years after that. Okay. Cause as I said, everything's funny. Everything's all fun and games till money gets involved and it's not right. in a ha ha way. All right. Right. So big litigation. And then the first litigation come out, the patent's valid, but not infringed. So nobody's happy. Then they go again. And then we came out, the patent was valid and infringed. So we come, we come out looking like a rose, you know, but it was, uh, it was a long slog, and the, my my partners who did work on that portfolio that aged them a lot because the first thing they do when they're going to go for uh, um you know to, to invalidate a patent is they go for the patent attorney. Mm. They try to assert an uh, um, uh, an uh, improper conduct for not citing prior art. Okay, you didn't you played hide the ball with the patent office. You know we have a duty of candor to the office both our inventors and ourselves, we must give them all of the art we are aware of that would impact the patentability of our patent. So the first thing they're going to say is you didn't do that. Mm. And that was an issue in that litigation, even though we overcame it, but that's the first place you're going to go. So you want your patents to make money, but not so much they get litigated because that will put hair, gray hairs in your head. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> so do you have people actually litigate the case? I assume you're not, you're not litigating. No, no. I've worked at both of the firms I've worked at are boutique firms. What we will do, we serve as the patent experts. Okay. So we assist the litigators. So if there oh, is a litigation, okay. I have, I'm, I myself has been involved in one and they'll call you up and they'll say, come and talk to us about what is this technology? You know, what, what should we be focusing on? You know, where are the issues here in this litigation? Okay. But we do not, we may be witnesses, but we will not be the litigators. Now, there are people who may do that, but they're few and far between. I have a few friends who are big litigators. Someone I went to Catholic school with is, you know, Kenobi Martins, who's written up for one of the most successful patent litigators in the country. But, you know, that's a, that's a career choice. Yeah. Like, I'm a prosecutor. I can, first of all, I can be wherever I am in the world and do my job wherever there's an internet connection. You know, I don't go to depositions. I don't, I travel for business and give lectures and might go see clients, but I'm not on any litigation schedule. Mm -hmm. You know, my friend Joe, he was away from his family, you know, eight months out of 12. You know, and, and he was one of 12 kids and his wife only had two. And she said, I'm not having any more till you're home. And he, he's really <laughs> litigated, so they only have two. You know, it's a thing. It's I think it's a lifestyle choice for me. It's perfect yeah. that because I, I am a bit of an egghead, so I like this. And I think I could litigate. I did move court in law school. I won, but because I I don't mind speaking in public. But I just don't think that lifestyle would be for me. I don't yeah. like to. Do you have much. any children? Two, uh, a fifteen-year-old and a twenty-year-old. Today's oh. his birthday. Oh, nice. <laughs> what are they? What? Are, oh, so they're still in school. Well, once in college, yeah. at twenty. Yeah. Yeah, he's at Monco. He has a bit of a learning disability. So we're okay. starting him slow. And then he'll go to a four year once he gets through this. Got it. And okay. Kelly's only in ninth grade. So oh, my boy yeah. is Jim, my daughter's Kelly. Because we're oh. Irish. We're <laughs> Irish. Wait, but is your husband Irish too? Well, my last name is Rigaud because he made me change my name. I was a Douglas. That was a fight for three months. But um, his mom was a Flanagan born in Ireland. His dad was uh, a Frenchman that was first generation. Yeah, I didn't think so that I call that, good, I call that good hybrid vigor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got a good sense of humor. I'll tell you that. You got the uh, queen's sense of humor. This is why I get jobs because I'm a patent attorney with a pulse. Some of them are a little dull. <laughs> Correct. You got a personality. No, I get it. 
And uh, yeah. you also have a lot, you got a strong constitution. If you, if I, most people that had come back from where you just came back, wouldn't they go to sleep? I know. You know what? I always say I'll rest when I'm dead. I just don't want to be as soon as I thought it might have been this week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, listen, I will let you go now because we've been off for a, a, quite a bit here. Okay. Um, what do you want to leave the audience with? What do you want them to know about your firm and you? And what's the best way to connect? Okay. First of all, our firm is one of the oldest firm patent firms in the country. We were founded in 1853 and we're still here. And um, we've written on amazing patents. And we actually hired the first woman patent attorney back around the 1890s. Um, we're, in we're in Bluebell, Pennsylvania, Housenhausen. Yep. LLP and our website is www.housing.com and you can find us there. Um, you can find my name. Uh, you know, Google is a beautiful thing. We work in all areas of biotech, chemistry, and electrical engineering, and we do copyrights and trademarks as well. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Very good. Actually, I actually have a degree in civil engineering, but that was that was enough uh, tech for me. Mm -hmm. they put mm -hmm burn me out at that point i'm i'm a business person so you must love this though this is like do you like it i mean oh this this is this is really just a way for us to connect with the legal community um mm -hmm. you know by doing this so that's that's all mm -hmm. let, let me let me let me just sort of close here that we can chat um anyway uh just for everybody uh this is again you go by kate right yes kate we're going from uh, the law firm of House and Housen, who is a patent attorney in uh, Pennsylvania, Bluebell, Pennsylvania. And uh, this show is sponsored by Emotion Track, which is a legal tech platform that helps litigators prepare for trials and mediations. And uh, thank you very much, Kate. It's always a pleasure. We'd be happy to serve as an expert on one of those. Beautiful. <laughs>